This is the Ben Ryan Podcast, part of the Sports Podcast Network. Welcome back to the podcast where this week I take a look back over Series 1 and the many and varied voices and perspectives that we've brought you over the past 10 weeks. Coach the moment, not coach the clipboard. It's not about the many things you do correctly or better. It's that one thing that actually makes a difference. Take the steps. Don't skip it. Mum sat me down and said, son, and it still sticks to me. She said, son, I never want you to live with any regrets. The Archbishop of Canterbury, asked, he talks about high-performing teams, and he's like, disagree well. There's a phrase that stuck in my mind, and it's compassionate ruthlessness. I can't remember the words exactly, but it was like, Greg, this is my train set. Shut up. You only train to make you better. And if you don't get any better, you'd as well do nothing and at least you'd be fresh. How hard is a hard day? And how light is a light day? My mom's like, is that a cult? Are you joining a cult? I was like, no, mom, it's going to get me, make me train my brain so I can get better grades. Ah, well, if it gets you better grades. The illiterate of the 21st century won't be those that can't read and write. There'll be those that can't unlearn. It's always learning, always reading, always understanding, always growing. I always say to the player, have you equipped yourself to perform better? And what have you done this season to make yourself better than you were last season? It's been a fantastic start to the podcast and to round things off, I've enlisted the help of my partner and TV presenter, Michelle Ackerley, who also happens to be an avid listener. Over the course of this chat, we pick out some of our favorite moments, discuss what we've both learnt, as well as expanding the chat around topics such as working in the media, lessons for life in general, and we also briefly look ahead to series two in July and tease who some of my next guests will be. So on with the show and for this special programme, whilst it's been great asking the questions, I resumed the role of guest. So it's the end of uh, your first series, Ben. Yeah. How does it feel? It's been fun, actually. I've enjoyed doing it and um, I've learned a lot, whether it's been some of the stuff that I've chatted to to my guests and also just the whole process of talking to somebody to get the right responses, you know. So I do that, obviously, as a coach, but I'm learning kind of different skills now to get people to say the things that, you know, know, I want them to say, I guess, that are interesting. And we'll talk more on that because it kind of relates to my world in a way, you know, the world of kind of telly and and presenting and as you say, getting the best out of people. But why did you want to create the podcast in the first place? Hmm, It's a good question. Thank you. I think um, I'd been on a lot of podcasts and I'd enjoyed them and I enjoyed the process and and I listened to them a lot, especially when we were before lockdown, I could, you know, you would go to go to work and get on tubes and listen to them. So I thought it'd be a good idea. And then Martin Cross, who's um, actually I met him through through coaching his son, Christian Lewis Pratt. Martin Cross has his own media company and he's been kind of he was nagging me for a while to really get something going. So him and and, and Russell, who's the producer, um, got me to sit down and start to, to, to nut something out. And that's where it, that's how it all began, really. And you've had some amazing guests on on your podcast. I've listened to every single one, obviously. Is there anything that's really stuck out to you from chatting to so many different people, some of which you knew beforehand, some that you've been getting to know through doing the podcast? Just upon reflection now, is is there any kind of key things that have really struck with you from doing this? I think it's a combination of things, really, because a lot of it is reinforcement, but through different stories or 
different words but the same kind of premise so it reinforces the kind of good stuff that you think that you you need to put together and wrap around culture and performance and it's coming out of somebody else's mouth that's done high levels of performance from in a in a different area and and so it, i guess that's comforting and maybe there's something that subconsciously i've magnetized towards the guests because i've seen some shared values or there's something there that i want to learn from them about you know what i've learned from listening to it you've got a really calming voice i mean i've learned many many things obviously from listening to your podcast but i actually really like the sound of your voice Thanks. I think it's... I know I listen to it every day, but it sounds different, doesn't it? Like yeah. over a podcast. I think, um, yeah, I've heard, I've got that a lot from a lot of people recently that I've come across as very calm. And I think I am calm and, and pretty laid back, but I think it's it's something that's emerged probably from my time in Fiji, if I'm honest with you. I think it. I think people that knew me before that time, they would say I'm fairly laid back, but I wouldn't say I'm necessarily calm. So it's something that's kind of emerged as one of my traits since probably 2013. I think that's interesting. And actually, that is such a good trait, I think, to have being an interviewer or, or presenter. You know, when I think of it from, from my point of view with broadcasting, because it does have an impact, I feel, on how the other person feels around you and what they feel comfortable talking about have you noticed that with the guests that you've been chatting to that you're able to put people at ease yeah I'm definitely conscious of um, wanting people to know a that that it's a it's a it's a safe space where you know I'm not trying to catch them out or anything it's just trying to get good conversation and you know obviously I rate what they're currently doing and that's why I wanted to get them on the pod but then also you want to show that you know you're competent as well. So yeah, I, I suppose that that all all helps. I was trying to think of that question about that calmness. Occasionally, I've had it in, earlier in my in my career. I think it's weirdly. I think some of the calmness has come from the Olympic gold medal, because you know it kind of underlines perhaps even subconsciously that that the way that you approach things has also got you know has got some success attached to it. And I used to get these reoccurring dreams that I'd have for years really where it would be going into a changing room putting your stuff on and you're never putting your kit on in the right order and so and and then so you have to put it all on again it's really frustrating and then you go out to go onto the pitch and you always go in the wrong door and you end up outside the pitch mm-hmm. looking in and that's constant that was constant and it went away when I won a tournament as a coach with the world series and then, you know, if, if then there was a break between tournaments or we hadn't won for a few months, then it would start to slowly creep back into my into my dreams. And then since the Olympic Games, I haven't had that reoccurring dream. So it's one that I had probably from the time I started with England Sevens in 2006. And I would have had it all the way through till 2013 and then sporadically with Fiji. And then it disappeared. And so it might be linked in. I think it's, I'm not saying that just winning a gold medal suddenly puts a stamp on on you that says, you know, he knows everything about what he's doing. It definitely, from an outside point of view, gives you kind of quality assurance. I mean, there's there's tons of rugby coaches I know that work in international sevens that are world-class practitioners. They haven't got Olympic gold medal because there was only one available, but they're still amazing at what they do and that doesn't shouldn't really come into it. But I think all the work I do outside rugby... Uh, I guess helps having that tag and the other successes we've had 
And I think it's more perhaps that I don't necessarily do things in a traditional way. So I'm a bit more creative in the way that I think. Um, I put culture kind of front and house a lot more and individual performance and getting the wrapping all of that around team performance. So because it's not the traditional way of doing things and because I haven't come from a traditional background, you know, I wasn't an international rugby player. I played professionally but never made the top end. There's always a little bit more of a glass ceiling to to get those top jobs or the top spots. And so when you then can get an, a world title or an Olympic gold medal underneath your CV, then that kind of breaks that glass ceiling. Mm. So, so I think that's probably why for me it did add to my relaxed nature that I suppose I've had since Rio. You say you didn't have a kind of traditional route into what you do. For people that might not know, can you just explain that a bit more? Yeah, I mean, I played rugby from the age of sort of seven with my mum took me down to Richmond Rugby Club and Captain Mack, who was the first guy that taught me rugby and it was tackling back then. You know, now there's lots of um, non-contact and um, tag rugby up until that age group. Back then, under seven, it was full on. You know, you could whack each other and I loved it and it was great. And so you go through the system when you're you know you're younger I, I kind of had a, a two or three years at school at Wimbledon College where I, I didn't really I just was off the rails a little bit and so wasn't focused on anything particularly um, and got lost a little bit and teachers t- tended to pick the big kids and I wasn't one of them and then kind of got through the university system with Loughborough and Cambridge and got back to playing professional rugby but I never got beyond that so although I played in the top two divisions I didn't then go and play, you know, a higher level international rugby. And and I think at at the emergence of the professional game, it almost felt like you needed to have that behind you to get given those top jobs. So then you work your way through the system. So I went from a supply teacher in Southall, coaching football actually, to then going to a private school in Oxford, to then coaching at Oxford University under 21s, coaching Oxfordshire County, coaching... Um, Newbury as the backs coach then coaching uh, Newbury as the main coach and then we took them into promotion and then every time it started getting to bigger organisations and then I coached England Counties and that's when I got on the radar with the RFU and then they got me involved in different age groups and then they asked me to to take the England Sevens job and then it went from there really so I kind of I literally ticked every single box going up I didn't jump any and in those first few years I just had hundreds of hours of on the pitch coaching which also gave me the kind of experience around the culture creating the right culture because I was doing so many different teams and I had come from lots of different backgrounds as far as the teams and people I was coaching. You mentioned creating the right culture quite a lot you know it's clear that that's something that's that's so important to to your style of working exactly what do you mean by that? I think a coach's job is to provide the support and the tools for somebody to get better, to improve. That means that you don't you need to personalise things in, in a way that also doesn't stop everyone understanding what the team rules are, what the guardrails, the guidelines are for those teams. So getting that culture right where people feel that they can, to use the a work example, to skip into work because they're really excited about going to work and also feel valued and also feel that their voice counts and that I care about them as an individual. You know, I'm a big believer that, you know, if they're happy off the field, if they trust you, if you know a bit more about their background and what their drivers are, 
then you can get more out of them than if you just treat them as a collective. And so, you know, whether that started with me in my journey as a kid, but certainly as a, in my professional chapter as a supply teacher first in, you know, school behind, in Wembley behind uh, IKEA, um, to going all around inner London on supply to then getting a job at Comprehensive in Southall where those kids still wanted to be valued and wanted to feel like they had purpose and belief um, even if that's your you know your, your year year eight tutor group they still want to feel value and so so those those things I guess drove me um, and that that for me is what kind of the, the principles of culture are. How important is listening and really paying attention within coaching and I ask this because I've been interested in the you know the, the crossover between broadcasting and and the telly world which is what I know versus the world of sport and coaching which is you know very new territory for me but but one thing that I always think about in terms of broadcasters that really separates the good from the great is the art of being able to listen and really hear what someone's saying but also pay attention to that. So for example, you might be in a live TV scenario and someone's talking in your ear, telling you how much time you've got. Um, you know, you've got to link to an ad break or whatever, but you were also engaged in a very in-depth chat with someone and you want to make sure that they are really, you know, giving you the best answers possible. So you've got to be able to create this art of really listening and letting that person know that you're really uh, engaged in, in that chat. Does that kind of resonate with you and and what you do and do you find within your world that there are the good and the great there's definitely people around around which you kind of feel like they're really listening to you so in the podcast dr austin swain for example you know i've got kind of briefly touched upon my time in loughborough in my first year where you know i never went to any lectures really but i did go to his and main, one of the reasons was his content was really interesting and I was just genuinely interested in the psych, psychology of stuff. But also he was engaging and he made you feel valued. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 20 years on where, you know, I go and have a chat with him um, for the podcast, exactly the same thing happens. You're engaged, you feel like he cares. He asks questions that makes you feel, yeah, valued. And, and you know, he recognises your cheat, all the things that he doesn't even realise he's doing that's creating, for me, a safety mentally around him. Um, and that's a real gift, I think. I, I, you know, I, I knew, I've known Austin for a long time and he's always had that. So that's probably a real, a real trait for him that, that he's had from the very beginning. Um, I think going into that communication, I think uh, there's different skills here for, for talking in, um, in a podcast to try to get that conversation right to make sure that you're allowing someone to kind of fully exhume and so you get all those you know the bits of information that maybe are waiting to come out and you've got to allow them to but as a coach I think I've had an up and down relationship with communication so I think um, where I say I'm always been very good at is picking up the non-verbal stuff so people's body language and general stuff around that where I've been up and down with his communication as far as listening effectively properly and not suddenly disappearing off into my own head with one thought and then switching off for a while and I think in in coaching terms you kind of split it into the pace of listening sometimes is and 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 that includes the non-verbal stuff is decision making and problem solving so with decision making it's often very quick 
in sport as a player you know if you see someone's shoulder pointing in the wrong direction you might be able to take take him on or or or, um little movement and depth and space they're quick decisions and obvious and normally there that's just based on experience that's autonomous you know you don't think about it whereas the problem solving which is far more on kind of the coach so if you imagine that's your players on your field doing thousands of those decision making Mm. um, choices all the time and you're trying to pick up little cues from that but then you've got the longer problem solving which is you're looking at the tactics you know do you need to shake things up a little bit do you need to have what are you going to say at half time they're the problem solving and I'll be picking up those communication skills from their body language, the flow of what's happening on the field, on what people are saying to me around and all of that stuff then goes into kind of your filter to then work out what you're going to try to solve. So it's 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 constant and, and changing. I think communication can be in that vein and it can also be in the, the way you actively listen to someone to get that deeper listening that, that Austin talked about in the pod. And just how much preparation behind the scenes has to go into that problem solving then? Because again, if if I think about, you know, writing a script or preparing for an interview, I'll do a lot of research beforehand and I'll prepare and I'll prepare and I'll prepare. And then actually when I get to that interview, I'll almost let it all go. But knowing in the back of my mind that I've got what I need, but then in that present moment, I'll be very reactive and you know in the now how does that relate at all to to what you do how would you how would you compare i think for people that work have worked for a long time in a very small area so let's take rugby sevens coaching or rugby rugby in general for me i think you've banked so much experience that problem solving or that decision making can come pretty quickly for you in your own strand of sport so I remember being I think I was in Los Angeles just doing some commentary guest commentary for at the World Series and one of the Fijian boys that I'd coached for a few years got the ball and in, in the in, you know 80 meters from the opposition line but I could you know I immediately said on TV this is a this is a try and he was nowhere near the try line but there were so many little things that I would have picked up subconsciously around the shape of where he was what he was doing what the defenders were doing the pace, the temp, everything that would have given me that information. And I've seen that with other experts, you know, sitting down watching a football match and someone going, you know, left back's got himself out of shape here. This is, there's going to be an opportunity. And then 10 seconds later, and he hasn't even, you know, it's been a very lazy glance and he's already got all that information. So I haven't got that in other sports. I'm at the at the point where I'm still trying to gather information to be more strategic and create problem and, and solve problems. I'll be trying to fix the problems that are the, that take longer and require the information that I've gained across a whole breadth of different areas rather than just that niche that in rugby you, you can see immediately in nanoseconds but in other areas that I'm doing now it just takes that gathering of information from all the multi-disciplines so that you can help someone solve a problem. So I guess it's long, longer term as well as that, that short term instant fix. Mm, that's it. What I'm really interested in as well, and you talked about it in your pod with Greg Barden, actually, is those difficult conversations that you'll have to have. And I thought that was a really interesting episode because the two of you really faced a moment within your careers where you fell out. And obviously, if you haven't listened to it, you know, 
this was the first time that you'd spoken for a very long time and you addressed a point in your career where you you said openly that you didn't feel that you're at your best and when I was listening to that I actually thought you know as a listener that takes a lot of confidence in, in a strange way for someone to openly admit that there was a point in their career where they didn't get it quite right um, and it made me think more about the the sporting world and egos involved and the pressure attached to performance. Is it normal for people to actually hold their hands up and be like, you know what, I didn't get that quite right. And, you know, how do you build from that? Because to me, as a listener, I think that is, that's the sign of someone that's actually got it right when they can address their flaws. Yeah, um, I think for coaches, you, you can look back at things differently and reflect. And if you're not in the moment and the ego's kind of been parked, then you can talk perhaps more openly about some of the mistakes you've made. But when you're actually in the humdrum of it and you're working day to day, I think it's a lot harder for coaches to accept that they've made uh, mistakes unless they're really open. And so so for me, like, you know, I probably coach, I don't know how many players I've coached, but thousands and thousands of, coach, of, of players. Greg was one of the ones that stuck out of having just not got that right and having unfinished business around that. Um, there's, I probably can think of one other player that I've coached where they would not speak well of me. But in that in that example, I don't think they've looked in the mirror and seen what they didn't do. Um, and and you know, I don't feel there's any you know there's anything for me to do in that respect. I felt I, you know that was something I dealt with. And and sometimes players don't always feel that they've been given the rub of the green when actually perhaps if they look at themselves, that's there's something that started with them but with Greg that was different and I've had other players I remember Chris Cracknell who, who ended up being assistant coach for me with Fiji you know I picked him up when he left Harlequins to play for Newbury and then I got rid of him and he moved on to another club and we had a mini fallout but it didn't last long because I had the tools then to sort that out and then I ended up bringing him back to play for England um, and then you know we've had a very close relationship since then so there's been occasions where you have healed healed those and, and and done them very quickly but in Greg's one it was a very cathartic experience because it'd been eight years you know I'd had no contact whatsoever I knew that it you know we had unfinished stuff to say I knew that I had got things badly wrong with him and then Greg had the you know humility really and um and his you know confidence in his own ability to entertain that conversation to chat about it so openly so what that, was going uh, through your mind when you're on your way to that I was I was I was actually you know I remember that it's a it's a nice drive down to Bath to the to the headquarters of Pixie and I'd given myself plenty of time and just had a couple of stops from my from my normal espressos did you have your cinnamon bun Benny? no no cinnamon cinnamon <laughs> bun but I do occasionally stop for a cinnamon bun at a, occasionally a, a, a well-known every week a well-known coffee shop of which their coffee is absolutely horrendous and don't touch it but they've got good cinnamon buns but the cinnamon bun actually that that, that is below Greg's HQ and Pixie at the coffee shop there is I think looks significantly better but I didn't have it and I was a bit nervous talking to him and so you do that whole small conversation at the start you know chatting about mm. coffee and uh, what you Weather. like and this and that yeah all that stuff how was your journey and uh, until you start to just warm up a little bit and get into stuff and um and I had kind of said mentioned at the start I'd like to talk about it and so Greg wanted to talk about it as well so very nervous about it I think those those conversations people call them courageous conversations or difficult whatever you want to call them 
they come at different degrees. So that was quite an extreme one that we'd had eight years not talking. But then there's the one where, you know, you get a, you just spoken to someone and not particularly had a, had a positive conversation. And then you can see that there's a phone call coming in from them and you don't deal with it or you see it. And what do you do? Do you answer the phone and have that difficult conversation mm. or do you park it? And it's easy to park it. But, you know, my advice would be to, is to, to you know, to immediately engage and and do that and that's a difficult skill to have that consistency and so it comes on every level from from those small things to the larger ones and another um podcast moment i'd probably say that stuck out for me was was your chat with margot i mean she's incredible really and and again i can imagine she's the type of person that's probably had a few difficult conversations within her career but the confidence that she exudes is just second to none isn't it yep margot wells i've come across not many practitioners where they're so sure i think cheryl calder is similar as far as she's 100 percent certain on what she delivers works and so that's you know i i've i've had physios that have been like that in the past um and i think austin wouldn't admit it but he knows that he probably has that that in his locker as well but with Margot with Cheryl but then with Margot yeah she's 100% certain that what she does works but then to kind of expand that what she does is not normal so she is not she's not come through you know a sports science degree a biomechanics masters all these various other things to put things underneath what she does she knows from her experience having coached her her husband at a very young age to an Olympic gold medal in the 1980 Moscow Games at 100 metres to what she's had over the last three or three decades plus. She's built up this bank of just confidence that she knows what she does works. And so she's filtered all of the stuff that perhaps she's used and doesn't work. So she's super confident about it. But she's going to have sceptics because she's not coming again from the traditional backgrounds. She's a female in a male-dominated sport, and that means the backroom staff are generally all male still. She's doing things in a slightly different way. She's not afraid to have conversations that's going to suddenly throw people's egos into the room at the same time. And that's all because she's 100% certain about her ability, and she feels... I think quite rightly that what she does other people can't do and just let her get on with it and so I kind of I came across her a small bit when I was England coach because some of the boys were using her and our physio also had a really good relationship with her so I never had any problems that she wasn't doing anything other than adding value and I'd always make sure that I'd speak to those players about the workload and what they'd done with Margot and what we needed to make sure so that neither of us were working them too hard so that they were going to break down so we had a good relationship with that and and then you know I didn't speak to her for ages until I had that conversation at Guildford at the Spectrum at the athletics track in the in the stands with the rain coming down and I could have spoken to her for hours you know and she's one of those people that once you finish the pod you think I'd like to have her as someone that you kind of have a sounding board for some of the other things that you do in sport just to get a get her independent view on stuff yeah a completely different perspective Do you think then it's about coaches, professionals finding their niche? Because one thing that seems, you know, a a trait with all of the people that you've interviewed is that they are 100% certain that what they do achieves things, you know, that 
that it creates success and even listening to Cheryl that was a, that was a completely different one I hadn't actually heard of someone that you know does what what she does and as you said before it's that kind of unwavering confidence in your own ability and actually finding as I said like a niche a different way of of doing things yeah I, I mean I think it's in most sectors but sport in particular and especially leisure industry there are so many charlatans around now that have neither got the um, expertise the experience or the research or um, in most cases actually any sort of qualifications to be telling you how to lose weight how to get faster how to put on muscle Um, and then taking that a step further coaches that have got to where they've got to not based particularly on ability, but might have had a head a, a step up for whatever reason their playing career or whatever it is. And we're also going through kind of a change really in the generation of players that we're coaching and athletes that require a different way to be um, to be talked to, to to be dealt with. And there is a you know a slowly removed group as well that of coaches that that didn't that weren't don't know how to handle that. So I think they're filtering all of that stuff out. And I guess I'm saying all of that because niches are emerging where people have decided, you know, over over decades that what they're doing works and it might not be across a huge remit, but it's small things. And, and actually, you know, with Cheryl, it's, it's not a small thing to get your vision better. No. You know, I'll be watching football all the time and it'll be, you know, somebody's not spotted someone on the far post for, for a cross or there's a pass or whatever. And actually she would argue that all of those things can be taught and can be learnt through the different exercises that she would do and the tools she'll give those players going back to as a coach giving them the support and the tools to make them better you're listening to the ben ryan podcast available on all major platforms including apple podcasts google spotify TuneIn, stitcher and amazon music I just want to hear some highlights from your career because obviously people would think winning Olympic gold, that is the, the standout moment for you. Would that be true? Or what, what are the kind of more nuanced moments, moments that people won't really know about that have really stuck with you and have meant something? There is no doubt about it that the Olympic gold medal is the number one because it was not that one moment. It was a it was a combination of three years hard work that had put a plan together so and it was then showing well it was then the reassurance that that what you did to prepare those teams over those three years you know worked and it it, you know without wanting to get into the actual the olympic games but it was one-way traffic really for us so we really were a level above everybody else and we had got everything right and the players were were just um well, they were running themselves by the, by the end of it. I mean, the nuance things for me are when you want to, when you decide on a plan of action for something that might be slightly different or you're looking at it from different ways. So it might be you, how you prepare a team going into a long haul flight with a short turnaround before a tournament and you nail everything so that you, you make sure that by the start of that tournament, they are feeling really happy, healthy, fit, jet lags gone. They're ready to go, all, and they're aligned. That's a that's a massive that's a massive win, and you feel a real sense of pride 
that you've got your multidisciplinary team. Everyone's together and they've done that. Now that that you know, no one knows about that because until you then you run out into the field in the first game. But actually, those those wins I find are vitally important. And then so are the moments where, as a coach, that you get a lot of two things really. Like I used to love watching just players that you know you spent a lot of time helping them get better and then suddenly seeing them blossom, you know, so whether they, mm. that meant they've, they've left your program because they've gone somewhere better and it's changed, you know, in Fiji, we probably had 20 odd players that went on from the program, at least to very high profile clubs where they were pay, being paid large sums of money that totally changed their life. So it's, it's a cool thing, always a cool thing to, to tell someone that you've, you've selected them to play for their country, but it's also a cool thing for them to leave that shirt and go somewhere that you know will change their lives and their family's lives forever. So that's those are the things that, you know, again, there's no result. No one's won or lost, but it's part of a combined effort towards helping someone get better. And then their journey takes them somewhere else away from whatever program you were doing. So they're the kind of nuanced things, I think, as coaches that we also love, as well as those in-the-moment things around going into a game, you know, five minutes, ten minutes before a match where... You just feel that everything's absolutely ready to go, you know, and you're very excited about it. And then you're, you know, that there's going to be a good performance coming. And on top of that, you get all the adrenaline rushing through because it might be in a stadium with 60,000 people and the floodlights on and everyone cheering. And those moments are, are why, I guess, one of the other reasons why you, why, you, why you enjoy coaching so much, because you do get that immediate feedback on whether what you've put into place and what your colleagues have put into place is working because someone's scored a try or someone's won a game. How does the mindset of, of a coach impact your day-to-day life or does it? Does it make you think differently about just normal actions? You know, because if I'm walking around sometimes, if I start speaking to someone in a shop or whatever, I might end up in like interview mode and, you know, start asking them yeah. so many different questions. I think, Michelle, what are you doing? Is there kind of a similar thing that you would do because of, you know, it's, it's within you. A couple of things. In day to day, like I don't enjoy watching rugby anymore because I don't look at it as a normal punter. I look at it. I'm looking at the technical, the small bits. I'm looking at what the, you know, the, all the other things around that. And so I don't enjoy it. I can't get. I can't take myself away from that at the moment just to purely enjoy it as a spectacle. So I watch very little rugby at the moment, which is a shame because it's a sport that you know I grew up and I loved and I adore, but. I you watch a lot of football though, Benny. I watch a ton of football, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's maybe because I can just enjoy it. Yeah. Um, because I didn't play football at a decent level. And I, I enjoy the drama of it. I really enjoy the movement and I pick up. So that going back to that point about coach, I then look at body language of, some, of somebody. I look at their warm-ups. I look at, you know, what they could do from uh, that they could input from other sports. And so all of that is of really a real interest. And outside of that, the general coaching, yeah, you, you and me will walk into Marble Hill Park and we'll watch Sunday League football. And, you know, you see the coaches like... You get so engrossed in that. Yeah, I could sit and watch that for ages. I love watching people at just getting into, into all sorts of um, loops around what they're engrossed in, what they're doing, but getting carried away and doing some fundamentals really wrong but they don't understand it because they haven't got the tools. And yeah, there's times that I would carry on walking and talk to one of those coaches, but I could see they don't want to engage. They're too busy at 
effing and blinding to somebody or shouting at the referee and it's the same when I'm walking past you know as we go into the park on the right hand side there's normally some some younger kids getting some football coaching and you can see sometimes there's one coach in particular when I see him he's always engaging always smiling always asking kind of questions or being positive yeah and you're thinking that's great and you want to go and see him and say mate you're doing a top job mm-hmm much better than that bloke over there with the Sunday league team. And then, you know, you go a bit further across and there's a cricket match going on or there might be a school, Orleans might have got their kids playing rugby on one of the other pitches. And so I'll I'll definitely have a kind of a tint of my eye around coaching. And then it's the same in other stuff that you see around COVID. You know, I get get infuriated sometimes that they've just got their guardrails or their guidelines. You know, we've got Richmond Bridge, it's supposed to have a one-way system here oh, and man, it's got go. it's got some signs go. it's got some signs on the floor big arrows showing which way to go and big signs on the end of the bridges but no one because they're so used to walking across that bridge without any of those signs it doesn't get no one cares there's no guardrails there and so a number of emails it sounds so alan partridge a number of emails that i've sent the the council to say you've got to change what you're doing here because it's there's no there's no change in behaviour. They completely ignore me because they like, well, we're putting up a couple of signs. It makes doesn't make a slightest bit of difference. They needed to have it various is, people there. It is quite amazing walking with you over that bridge because 100% of the time we've walked over, you will make a comment. It's one of those things that does not sit with you. And then sometimes I'll walk over and be like, you know, maybe today we'll just, let's just look at the, should we just look at the view? Should we just look at the river? And you will on every occasion reference it you know because it's obviously so it's a part of you isn't it it's like there's some guidelines there and no one's no one's following them how can we how can we make this better yeah I get I used to get I did the same I mean like if I saw someone walking and they drop some litter I can't stop and not say something even if that that's a group of young lads that I probably you know could put myself in danger I still could not something inside me that would physically be unable to let go of that and it goes back a bit to what I talked about with Fiji, the standard you walk past is a standard that you become. That, for whatever reason, that's been implanted at me from years dot. And, you know, for the good or the bad of, of that's, that's how I'll, I'll behave around things. Yeah, and, it, and it's kind of, you, you, you want to pick, if you feel that there's something that's really gone against your value system, maybe not, you know, a little nudge, but a big enough nudge to... Yeah, you see me walking over the bridge and I'll pretend that I've, I'm not bothered, but I'm really bothered oh, when yeah. someone walks the wrong way past a, yeah. an arrow. But then I'm not, it's not their fault necessarily, although I kind of have partial blame to them because I'm thinking they should be looking at the signs more. But it's just human behaviour. That is fascinating, just that the area around value and how important it is for everybody. You know, it could just be that they were having a bad day, as Mate, simple yeah. as that. I think you don't know, do you? No, you don't know. I mean, this is probably for another time and you probably don't want to talk too too much about this. But in your industry, I mean, the lack of guardrails, the lack of wanting to engage in difficult conversations is mind-blowing, really. Yeah, we've talked about this a lot. Like, I'll come home and be like, oh my God, I've just had this conversation with a commissioner and... It's, yeah, it's kind of at odds with everything that you yeah. value and, and hold dear. And and no one gets picked up for it, yeah. you know, because that's it's not... I think it'd be interesting for someone from your perspective going into a different uh, world, you know, and could probably actually give a lot of yeah, they need great a, insight. I mean, I go into some of the corporate stuff I do, they, 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 they bring you in because they want... 
they want to see change. And so it's an easier environment to come into because they're willing to change. Going into something like that, I mean, they need lots of people to go in there and they need a massive clean out across the whole industry, in my opinion. But if they're not willing or they don't see it and they've got these blind spots, you know, we could talk about blind spots and um, sub, uh, subconscious bias and all these various things, then they're never going to they're never going to learn. And plus, there's there's no guardrails as far as them being brought to account by treating people badly. So, yeah, that's another fascinating sector, really, mm. that, that can... But it just shows the kind of work that you do. It crosses boundaries, doesn't it? Because, you know, various industries, organisations, companies, if they had a certain structure, you talk about guardrails and, and values and mission statements that actually work, things could really change. So, so just f- finally, what's the future for you? What would you really like to be doing next? What are you working on next? Yeah, the, there's definitely. I, I mean, on just a just as a sidebar thing, I do miss I do miss the date the, the tournaments at at sevens because it's they're such fun because it's two days of six games generally, and you go on this roller coaster as a coach, winning, losing, learning, planning, replanning, um, dealing with people that of going through various emotions, opposition, referee, everything's brilliant. It's a massive learning curve for coaches, and that's why I think there's some amazing sevens coaches that that would do brilliantly in, in 15s, given the chance. But that world's kind of left me behind now, really, you know, and I'm, we're here and settled in London. And I think, although there's obviously lots of nuances in sport, I think what I find fascinating is that it doesn't matter where you work or what you do. I've not come across anybody yet that that is working in a culture where they don't feel valued or they don't feel happy that they're going into work that they really enjoy or they're really successful at. You know, so that commonality going into another sport in a performance role to help them get their culture right, help them maybe um, pick up on areas where I've got good insight into it, into and that that breadth across, I find really exciting. So going back to coaching, adding value to people through support and resource and experience is where I'm going to end up next, and and probably not in rugby. So yeah, yeah, you know that that's kind of. Um, my next 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 stop michelle exciting times mr benjamin ryan yeah well thanks for asking me these questions we talked about different things really you've hardly mentioned fiji which is normally i you know those stories are the stuff that people want to hear but there's there's stuff behind that and i guess that's why i got all these guests for this first series they're not always the household names that people initially maybe want to get attracted to listen to a podcast but they've got such insight and such interesting stories and they're the people that I want to, you know, to find for series two. And we've, we've started to pick up a really nice list of names of people that are going to come on board for the next series that's going to give us more of the same, really. So is this when it, the music would come in and it goes, this is the Ben Ryan podcast. <laughs> I have to do an outro now, but maybe, yeah, because Russell, the producer, will still say, now you've got to go to an outro and name all the guests and then tell people to like and rate click the pod and subscribe you say click and subscribe and please leave a review hold on this so you say they really can they really do make a difference yeah they can't they do because like you they know do. you've had some great reviews though. we've had some great reviews and and it's not about moving up the charts or anything like that because it's the quality of the people that are listening i i love i get so much feedback from people that are actually doing day-to-day performance jobs so yeah you know russell say maybe i can cover it in this you know that um, go to TuneIn, Spotify, 
Apple Podcasts, Google, or maybe Wherever missed one. Wherever you get your podcasts from. Wherever you get podcasts from. from. That's another yeah. thing you say. Subscribe and share and, and rate. Rate and review. And I can probably name all the ones to start with, with Tom Fordyce, just as a bit of a, um, a starter, a bit like I'm finishing with you. And then I we had... Mark. Mm, no, it's breakfast time, so you'd be a pan of chocolate, but in the wrong way around. Yeah, it's the wrong way around. I guess yeah. you'd have a pan of chocolate at, at the end. But then we've got, yeah, so Margot Wells um, and then Namani Nandalo uh, and Austin Swain that we did two with and then Matt Little, who was who was brilliant and we haven't talked about, but um, he's, he's fantastic and we've kept in touch since. He's got a new book that's coming out soon that, that'll, be, that'll be Ace and Cheryl Calder. Um, Tony, and Tony Minicello that went to, up to see in Sheffield that's really enigmatic coach someone that you know that I'd love to have been coached by as a as a kid which I guess is always a good yeah yeah it's a really that's a great you know, indicator isn't it yeah and then Irwin so E from New York Lick so in Valencia um, who's just got ridiculous amount of knowledge and happiness around everything he does um, and then Greg Barden um, and I, oh have I forgotten somebody I probably have You've had a really, really what? strong mix of guests. Yeah. You could have a great dinner party, you know, and things are normal and we're not in I thought about COVID that. times I th- anymore. I th- All th- those people around a table, it'd be ace. Well, it? I thought whether it would be good actually to have kind of like a mini um, kind of summit where I get all of these people and Between we can, you, we can, can, we can talk about it all. In the world, couldn't you really? Yeah, that would, that would be, that would be pretty good. And, uh, so I think no, I think I, co- I covered I covered off everybody in those in those ones. So I don't think I missed anyone. And like you said, in the the next series, you've got some more great guests to come. Yeah, we've got some we got some great ones. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. We're recording from you know this week onwards till June um, to uh, to get that right blend again. You know, because performance and culture, like we've talked about, isn't just in one specific area. You know, it might be people in the military or the police mm. force or government or um corporations or all sorts of things so as well as obviously the normal diet of sport and i'd always like to have a a guest from the pacific as well at least so i've got a very special one that i'm hoping to line up for for next series that will be a lot of fun um and we've also got you know i've already lined up some that i think you know are household names but are also ones that no one's ever heard of but they'll be a bit like the margos and mm. and greg's and and austin's and podcasts where they'll they'll get the most value from so no thanks for this michelle it's been good i can have another coffee now though can i yeah i i'm gonna get another tea well you can make one if you like yeah okay i I do you know great well do you want to say this has been the oh yeah can i say it yeah hold on what do i say we just say this has been the ben ryan podcast thanks for listening okay yeah and what anything else see you in july okay three two one this has been the ben ryan podcast Thanks for listening. See you in July. Hear you in July. Same see thing, really. July? They won't see physically see me, will they? Unless they're actually one of the guests. So why do people say see when you don't see it? Hear you in July. No, hear you in July doesn't make sense. This has been the Ben Ryan podcast. Thanks this is your main listening. day job, isn't it? That I'm not Ben Ryan, am I? No, but you, you know, you, you have to play different characters sometimes or different personas. Okay, one more time. All right. This has been the Ben Ryan podcast. Thanks for listening. Hey, not hear you soon. I'm just, I'm not saying Let's that Let's just bit. not even use any of this last bit. I know. This has been the Ben Ryan podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll be back in July. 
nailed it. That was good. 